Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can sing together and that we can come together again in your name. Thank you for this wonderful privilege and just joy to come and sit together and worship you. Thank you that you love us and that you take care of us. Pray this in your name. Amen. How's it, guys? Sorry, we're still recording podcasts, so I just need to put this on. Um, so hi to everybody that listens to the podcast. It's a bit dodgy. Is it on? Recorder. Okay, cool. I think it's going to stick in. Okay. Let's hope this one works. So tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about sense-making views. So... In your life, so all of us have a sense-making view that was either like adopted or drilled into you from like very small. <laughs> so you have a way that you see the world and the way that you view spirituality and religion and God and everything and how all of these things kind of fit together and um, how you make sense of whatever is happening. So if something is happening, somebody is sick or you get a job or lose a job or whatever, you have a certain way of thinking that tells you why things happen or why things are the way they are. All right, so this is fascinating because uh, sense-making views are often like not our own or you're not even aware that you have them because they've been with you for so long. So, for example, here's an interesting thing. Like by the time you're about three or four years old, you have already decided how the world works. Right, and how it fits together. And s small children tend to have a magical, what is referred to as a magical worldview, but it's a self-centered one as well, meaning that you have all the power in the world, right? And many people still believe this. <laughs> and um, that whatever is happening is because of you. Right? Because Think about it. If you're six months old or a year old or whatever, you are the only thing that you know kind of exists, and whatever you do affects the entire world around you. So if somebody is sick, it is because you did something, right? Because you are the only entity in a, in a weird way that kind of exists and influences the world outside. If somebody is not present, it's because you did something. If somebody is nice to you, it's because you did something. So every single thing that happens is because of you, right? So. This is what is referred to as like sort of a magical worldview, if I understand it correctly. So, and um, believing that if you say a certain word, then something will happen. Then things are caused by yeah your your own intervention. So that's one way of understanding a magical worldview. Another way is many people still have a magical worldview, but it works a little bit differently. They'll say that you know if you say certain things a certain way then the world will be a certain way, right? Which is nothing other than magic. If you say a certain, a certain phrase, then the world will be a certain way. If you have a certain object, then you will be safe or your family will be safe or whatever. If you mix these two things together, then something will happen. So that is what's also called as a magical worldview. So many people in their spirituality have a magical worldview, saying that they believe that you have to print out Psalm 91 and bury it in your garden. And then God will protect that house. Or you have to put the bumper sticker on it, and then God will protect that car. 
right? So that's no offense, I'm not, I'm not meaning to demean anybody, but like that's what is referred to as a magical worldview. So it, it kind of, <clears throat> there's different ways to understand spirituality in different ways that you are making sense of the world. And what, when it gets interesting is when you start becoming aware of what your sense-making views are, when you start separating yourself from it, going, this is not necessarily the way the world works, this is just the way that I see it or this is the way that I have been brought up, or this is the way that my culture sees it. Because if your culture believes that one race of people is bad, and that's why all the bad things in the world happens, you know, that's also called a sense-making worldview, or a worldview, right? So, can you like, bad representation, Niels? Oh, there you go. And it was night. Okay, before we get to that slide, we're in John 13. So you can open there if you want. We're going to read like three passages. And what's interesting about these three passages is that they, they show a new, a new worldview or a new sense-making view of who God is. So this is always cool to talk about when you talk about who God is and who scripture is actually saying that God is because that's kind of the point of this book is revealing who God is and um, it's cool to look at it as it progresses so scripture is one big narrative and um, it's cool to look at like one or two or three more texts to see how it progresses so we're not going to look at all of them but we'll look at some and in John 13 Jesus gives a glimpse of who God is in this, in this beautiful passage. So it starts, John 13, there, verse 31. It says, um, okay, but before we read that, let's just read the bit before. And the little bit just before, Jesus is having supper with his disciples, and it's the bit where Judas betrays him, right? So it's always interesting to read, or it's always good to read if it's a really important verse or really important little part of scripture to read what goes before and what goes after because oftentimes the writer tries to bracket it and the context of the actual verse within the text is actually really cool so this was one of those examples it says right before it says jesus speaks to judas or um to his disciples and says one of these is going to betray me and then verse 26 jesus answered is the one whom i will give this piece of bread when i have dipped it into the dish in dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So it's only John that actually says this. So John in itself has like a very specific view about how things work. Then Jesus speaks and says, What you are about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood what Jesus said, why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money... Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what is needed for the feast or give him something, something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So it's this very ominous kind of scene. And John, the, John has this way of dealing with light and darkness throughout his whole, throughout his whole gospel that he uses it as a metaphor so it's not by accident that it will, he's just not saying that it, oh by the way it was night time there's a kind of ominous dark cloud having hanging over the scene so let me just read a little bit further so then you have the centerpiece which is our text for tonight it says 
When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So this is typical like Yohannine writing. What it means, or what it's saying is that God will reveal himself in the Son and the Son in God. So John has this way of writing, God is in the Son and the Son is in God and the Father is in the Son. And he, kind of, he writes like in these little circles. <clears throat> Jesus then goes further and he says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now, when I'm going, where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 34, here's a little key. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must well love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Then Simon asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So what's interesting about this whole little piece we just read, you have Judas's um, betrayal or treason, and then you have this beautiful text right in the center where Jesus says, God will glorify himself and be glorified in me and I in him and will reveal himself. And he gives a new command, almost this beacon of light that says, love one another. And by this, everybody will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. Jesus reveals something about God that has not been revealed before, kind of this new idea or this new-ish thing, saying it plainly. And then just after that, you have, a, you have darkness again with Jesus announcing Peter's betrayal, how Peter is going to disown him. So darkness, light, darkness. And John writes in this way a lot, like I said. So if you just... Just, it's interesting to see John's theology of light. Right in the beginning of John 1, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in John 3, it says, This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into that light so that it may be seen plainly that whatever they have done has been done in the sight of God. What's beautiful about John's light, this is just a side note, John's theology of light. You could actually go read it and try and underline throughout the whole John all the time he mentions light and darkness. As John frames even salvation in terms of light and darkness. He frames everything in terms of light and darkness. So <clears throat> all of us, to go back to the sense-making worldview, every single one of us have a view about God, about who he is, right? If I tell you who is God, you might have a picture like this in your head. This is God on his, on his throne, depicted on his throne, with the cherubim and the angels and so around him. Or you might have something like this in your mind about who God is. A, a, a male, older guy with lots of light and power streaming from him. Not one of these is wrong. Like, don't give me, it's not wrong to have this kind of view. It's just interesting to see. So here's one, the God the Creator. 
which you might have with a big frown. This is one that's quite common. God the chess player. And people are in the center and God moves the pieces around and he's kind of playing against the devil. So there's this idea of there's darkness and there's light and that there are opposing forces and that God, the light, needs to fight the darkness and overcome it. And that when you become a Christian, you enter into this kind of battle where we are battling the darkness and stuff. So this is also one of the sense-making worldviews, one of the views of God. So most of these, most of, let's leave it on the nicer one. <laughs> most of these actually um, come from a three-tiered worldview. So um, in, in the Bible, the world went Creation is described throughout in the Psalms, in Genesis, and everywhere. Where creation is, is described, it's described as a world that's got three stories. So earth is in the middle, a flat disk. And then underneath the earth is Sheol, or Hades, or the pit. And then above the world is a dome. So in Genesis, you'll see God creates a dome to separate the waters. The waters above the, above the heavens and below the heavens. So there's a dome. That's the sky, and then heaven would be above that, right? So there's like a three-tiered worldview. Or somebody, some writers in the Bible would explain it as three heavens. It doesn't mean that there are three heavens. It means that there are three spaces in the world. So the one in the center, one in the middle. Uh, one in the center, one at the bottom, one in the middle, oh, on top. <laughs> and um, I'm really confused. I'm really tired. So, so in this worldview... Where does God live? Up. Right? God is up. Where is hell or death? It's below, down. Right? So you see this in Scripture all the time. You go way into the grave, into the pit. Down. When David talks about, I'm going down to the pit of despair. Right? When God um, visits his prophets, he comes down from heaven. When Elijah goes in his chariot of fire, he goes up, right? So when Jesus goes away, he goes up. He gets taken away, up or down. So it's easy to see how um, our world or people could have this worldview because when you are a farmer in a, like a agrarian society, you would heaven, like rain and sun comes from, this is really easy questions guys, <laughs> heaven, <laughs> rain and sun comes down, right, which feeds your crops, so good stuff comes down, right, when you die, we put you where, down, so bad stuff come, goes down, right, so it's easy to see how people, when they write and when they would talk about God, they would use this way of speaking. So where it gets difficult is when we take a picture of our earth from outside and then we go, wait a minute, there is no up. Right? Or we take a picture with our biggest, strongest telescope into the sky and go, wait a minute, there's no one there. Or we dig as far as we can go and then we go, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, it's only golden diamonds. 
Yeah, what is this about? So what's interesting is that many of these kind of pictures or many of our views about who God is actually comes from this three-tiered worldview that God is up and we are in the middle and that hell or whatever is down and that we have to do stuff so that God will come down. Have you ever heard somebody say this? In, and with the best intent, right? I'm not meaning to demean, you know, or make fun of people's kind of worldviews, but people will use language like, and God showed up, right? Because where is God? Because God is not here. God is up. So he is in another place. So when God does something, he needs to come down and show up, Right? And we have to pray so that our prayers can go up so that God can hear him and he can come down and do something, right? And we have to kind of twist his arm enough so that he can come and do something. So a three-tiered worldview kind of does that. It develops that kind of theology, which is a little bit frightening for me. And um, <clears throat> also, you, so why does God, who is up, only come down and meddle at certain times. Like this morning, somebody said, oh, so great, I prayed and God gave me a parking space. And I was like, I understand that that's really cool and that that's really great for you, but what about praying for Syria? Like, let's just like, you know, why is God not coming down and doing something in Syria? Why is God taking the time to give you a parking space in Menland, but not coming down when children are drowning, trying to escape their country, right? But if you have a three-tiered worldview where God is up in heaven, coming down sometimes to do stuff, then that becomes like a problem because this is what this kind of worldview creates, is it creates a theology where God is other or not. And lots of the times, all the major problems that... Um, some atheists and people have with God, they don't actually have a problem with God, they have a problem with this three-tiered worldview. This idea that God is other and he has to come down, and why doesn't he come down all the time? Why is he not here? Why is he, if he's good, why is he not helping us? And all of those things actually come from this view of God, that God is not here. All right? Does everybody, is everybody like with me? So what Jesus is doing what Scripture is doing is it's developing the view of who God is. And at the end of the day, is when Jesus reveals who God is, what does Jesus do ultimately to reveal when he says he will be glorified and I will reveal who God is and God in me and all of that that John this? What is the act that Jesus does? Right? It's the passion, the crucifixion, Jesus' death. That is the ultimate revelation of who God is and where God is. If you want to see who God is, God is on the cross. And God is the one that says, love one another. And if you do that, then people will know that you are part of me. And this is a, <clears throat> a radical revelation of who God is. That it's not this a God who's sitting on a throne in the sky, <clears throat> that is the God who is with us and that is inclusive and that is here and that is present. 
It's very difficult to believe in a God who is up there when we know scientifically that there is no up there. And everything starts to become a little bit hazy. But what Jesus does in his revelation is saying that God is love and God is the one that's on the cross and God is ever-inclusive. So if we read a bit further, it's Acts 11. I'll just tell you, we're going for a little bit long. So in Acts 11, <coughs> Peter is alone on Cornelius' roof and um, he has a vision of a sheet that comes down from heaven and inside the sheet is all types of animals, right? Unclean and clean. And then he hears God say, eat, kill and eat. And Peter says, hell no, I am a good Jew. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not touching the stuff. And then God sends down another sheet and says to Peter, kill and eat, right? Have a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> and uh, Peter says, no. I'm not a good Jew, I can't do this. And then a third time, and a friend of mine always says, Peter does not do well in threes. Right? So a third time, God sends the sheet down and says, kill and eat. And then Peter gets it eventually and then goes back to the disciples and says, I think that God, I wonder if I wrote it down. No, I didn't. That God wants us to include the Gentiles. That the people who eat unclean food, the people that we see unclean, that God is including them as well. So this is almost like if you have this beacon of light where Jesus and John says, love one another, this is the new command. And then you have this kind of beacon again in Acts where everyone is included, where all people are included in all nations. You're going, wait a minute, this is much bigger than a God who is a God just of one people, a small group of people, that it's a God who is about everyone. It gets to be a little bit more. Then... I'll read this last one. It's in, we will jump right to the end in Revelation. <clears throat> Which is probably one of the most important texts. Revelation 1, 21.1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down... So we still have a three-tiered worldview. Out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And it goes on and on. So here you have the three-tiered worldview described, but it doesn't, obviously doesn't mean that it is like that. The point of the Revelation text is that God is now worth. And if you, have all, if you line up like these three beacons, you have love one another for all people and I'm worth you. 
you start developing a view of God that is much more and much bigger than a three-tiered worldview about a God that is other and up. And you have to do enough stuff to get him to do his stuff, which is random at the best of times. What Scripture reveals and what Jesus reveals is a God that is, that is with you, that is with us and around us when we love one another, a God that comes to us, right? That the movement is towards us always, not us trying to get up, but God that is here and together and living with his people. The book of Revelation is a tricky one because it's both future tense and present tense at the same time. So Revelation and uh, other apocalyptic literature, it means, it re- the word apocalyptic means to reveal, so hence Revelation, but it does not mean to reveal what is in the future, it means to reveal what is now, right? What is present. So John, writing Revelation, is revealing what is happening at the moment, mostly in the book. Some are future, but mostly it's revealing what is now. What is happening at the crucifixion? What is happening when Jesus rose from the dead? What is happening in the church right now? So the Revelation texts, you can almost read them both present and future tense. Not saying that God's city will one day come, but that it is now already here with you. And to receive that. And that's what I want to finish off with, I think. There's language is an interesting thing because it kind of gives away your sense-making view. So oftentimes in communion, you'll hear people, like, listen out when you visit other churches and you're around or you're visiting here tonight. Like, it's very interesting always for me to listen when somebody is handing out communion or giving communion or whatever. Like, that, the language they use kind of betrays their view of who God is. There's a very big difference between Taking and receiving. Like if I tell you, take, you can come and take a communion, you can come and take the bread. It's a very big difference to, I want you to receive the body of God, the body of Jesus. Because in receiving, you are actually passive to a large extent, to a larger extent than taking. Taking requires action on your part. Receiving doesn't. Except for holding your hands, maybe. Or opening your mouth. So in Catholic tradition, it will always be receiving. You receive communion, you never take it. You never reach out your hand and take it. You always receive it. So, so much so that you would open your mouth and the priest would put the wafer on your tongue. Right? Which is beautiful because that's exactly who God is. Is that it's not about you taking, it's about you receiving. And this is where so many of us fail, right? Because we, we are very, very bad at receiving. We are very bad when somebody gives us a present or a gift or blesses us with money or with whatever. You're like, no, 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 don't give it to me, don't give it to me, I don't know, I'm fine, I'm cool. And it's like almost this kind of, you feel like to receive something is to be arrogant. But we all need practice in receiving, You need practice into receiving the love that God wants to give you. And when somebody wants to bless you with something, and they go, oh no, it's fine, we'll get the bill, and then you have that 
the guys always have this stupid like mock battle where you're like, you have to kind of reach for your wallet and you kind of have to kind of, no, no, are you sure? No, no, are you sure? No, no. You know? It's a guy thing. I don't think you have to kind of, I don't know if girls are the same, but like guys are always like, oh, 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 no, okay. So, but, but you didn't have any money in your wallet anyway. <laughs> so like, but there's practice in that. When somebody offers to pay for dinner, you go, thank you very much. That's great. Right? Instead of pretending and now fighting over it. I'll get the next one. Rather say just thank you. That's awesome. Because that's the way we are with God. It kind of reveals who we are. So to receive is super important because this is what God is. Is He is with us all the time. And the with us language is a lot better in our culture than the up and down language. Because up and down in our culture just creates a bad theology. Right? Up and down 4,000 years ago created something that was beautiful. Up and down right now is not really a great place to be. It doesn't work anymore. With us is great. Saying that God is all around us. Saying that receiving God is not receiving something from up there. It's just opening up inside. To have a language of awareness and enlightenment is that makes a lot more sense to us at this time. To say that when you are with God, when you become saved, you don't go up, you become open. Connected is a great, is a great word rather than saying God showed up. Because right now, really easy metaphor, there's Wi-Fi all around you, right? But you have to receive it. That's super stupid and like a really like teenager like sermon, but it's a really great way to think about God at this point in our culture at this time. 4,000 years ago, no, 4,000 years in the future, some preacher guy will be sitting here going, that's a really bad way to talk about God because in that culture it will create something bad. So <clears throat> I want to leave you with this image of the hands and of receiving to say that, do you want to receive what God wants to give you? And that's the question. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come and you reveal to us who God is. That he is a God of love. A God that loves us and that wants to be with us. May you help us to put down our false sense of humility in our pride and open up our hands to receive who you are. Thank you for this community. Thank you for every person in here. Thank you that you are standing at every door and knocking, just waiting for us to receive you. Thank you that you are so kind. Thank you that you include all people. Thank you that you draw everyone up to you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.